The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and uh, at this time of the week, we look at things having to do with politics and the law. Today, politics, since we've had some elections this week and some polls and some things that need a certain kind of analysis. When we need that kind of analysis, the first person we turn to is Simon Rosenberg, a 30-year veteran of U.S. politics working as a political strategist and commentator who can be found on his substack, Hopium Chronicles. Hey, Simon, how are you? I'm good, David. We had a good week. It's good to be here. It was a good week. The worst thing that happened this week is that I read you were a 30-year veteran of U.S. politics, and frankly, I remember when you started. So that makes me feel real, you and, you and real me. fucking old. I know. You and me both, <laughs> brother. <laughs> uh, we are also joined today by another friend who's been with us before, Tom Boniers, a veteran Democratic political strategist and the CEO of the Terra Group. I hope you don't feel as bad as Simon and I do, Tom. <laughs> I don't think I do. Uh, though I have to say, Simon, I think you might have more than 30 years there because I'm only a year away from my 30 years in the bids. So. It is a little bit more than 30, but who's counting? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's, <laughs> let's move on to happier things. Um, uh, there are a couple of things I want to talk about today, but since we had some elections this week, um, which produced all sorts of analysis, I was watching you know, on MSNBC and CNN. And the way the analysis would go is every time something good would happen for Democrats, somebody would come on and say, yes, but. And then they would go, you know, yes, but there were polls that said bad things or yes, but this will produce overconfidence that will produce bad things or yes, but people don't like Joe Biden and the exit polls. Or I mean, it was really kind of unbelievable since the underlying news story seemed to be positive, but they were desperately trying to make it negative. How do you deal with that, Simon? Do you do you, uh, drink? Do you take drugs? That helps I come on podcasts uh, with you. Yeah. Um, listen, the bottom line here is that since Dobbs, you know, we saw heightened Democratic performance in special elections and voter registration, early vote. I'm stealing some of Tom's thunder here. But in the run up to the November elections in 2022, And then we saw a heightened performance in the election itself, and we had a really good election. In 2023, throughout this whole year, we've seen heightened Democratic performance in 
state Senate races, state House races, and in uh, municipal races, in ballot initiatives, in every possible kind of race. And then we saw a really strong Democratic performance in the election itself. We have been kicking ass for the last 18 months. We keep winning all over the country. I mean, Bashir, we did better in this election, just, just happened than anyone anticipated. Uh, Bashir got a higher margin than he got in 2021. We gained a lot of seats in the New Jersey legislature. Uh, we no one, th- I mean, I will tell you, people were not optimistic about us flipping the house in Virginia. We did that as well. We came close to Mississippi. We got to 57% in Ohio. I mean, this was an amazing election. No buts, no commas, no howevers, no semicolons, right? Nothing, David. We've had, we've been on a roll since Dobbs in spring of 2022. And it makes me incredibly optimistic about what we're going to be able to do next year. Yeah, I mean, I, it was good news everywhere except for Mississippi. And, you know, the only way I, you know, um, uh, assess that is that, you know, all these other elections were play, taking place in 2023 and the election of Mississippi was taking place in 1953. <laughs> but, um, uh, Tom, you, uh, you you bring a special perspective to this. We learned a lot the last few times you've been on from looking at early voting. What special insights did you gain from all that happened this week? Well, you know, I, w- one thing I, I do want to jump in on at the outset here to, to dovetail into what Simon was saying and, and what you were saying about these polls is one of the big takeaways, the lessons learned when everyone had the mea culpa after November 2022 and they said we should have listened to Simon <laughs> and we should have listened to you, David. Um, By the way, Simon's been saying that for 30 minutes. <laughs> that was, you know. Just ask, I think he has a he has a bumper sticker yeah, on his car that just, says that. Just ask my kids about that. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, they they know better. Exactly. Uh, but that was the takeaway. And when we talked about the polling, the big takeaway was, uh, well, the polls actually weren't that bad. The analysis was bad. And I think that's one of my bigger takeaways from this week. Not that you know polls were good or bad. There weren't many polls. For this week, it's the world we're in now. Is there aren't many public polls when you look at the races uh, uh, from Tuesday? Very few public polls out there, so I'm not going to criticize those. But to your point, there are the New York Times polls, the CBS polls, the CNN polls, all showing this supposedly bleak outlook for Democrats. CNN had great time in and released their poll at 7 p.m. Just as polls closed in Virginia, and then started talking about that, and then I think quickly realized that their poll was contrary to the reality of what we were observing. And so here we are again, falling into the same pitfall. Uh, Let's not blame the polls. Let's blame the analysis. You can't poll a race a year out and expect it to tell you what's going to happen or even be connected to that reality at all. I know that's difficult for people. There's some utility in these polls. The utility is not and how people are actually using it, which is trying to predict outcomes in a presidential race a year from now. Let me ask you a follow-up question, Tom, and then Simon, I would like you to answer it. And this is going to come from left field. You're going to think it's the weirdest question you've ever heard. But um, uh, but I know this is a subject Simon's a little interested in, and it's a subject I'm immersed in all the time now. And that is, you know, when I look at polls, most polls, essentially what the effort is, is to create a, a uh, 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 you know, a kind of a mini model of what is going to happen in the election by calling up a subset of the people. Um, typically, you know, uh, therefore, a lot of effort goes into trying to make the subset as much like the electorate as possible. 
But, you know, if a poll is using landlines, then it's not going to be that way. And if a poll is done during a certain time of the day or done in a certain kind of way, it becomes less like that. Um, uh, and and we, we, we tend to believe that polls are the best way to predict the outcomes of elections. Because all the other ways that we might have, which involve a hugely complicated multivariable analysis of you know the 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 the, the you know the, you know everything from the candidate, the positions, the weather, past elections, regional elections, broken down into each of the regions involved in the poll, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's really hard to do. It, it, what it seems to me like, though, is the difference between the way we did everything in the pre-AI era and the way we're going to do things when we have AI looking at elections as huge multivariable sets of data that can be analyzed in a much better way than a poll can be. And, and, I, and I know that sounds like a little out there, but it just seems to me like we're using 1940s technology in the 2020s. I, I agree. I don't think that's out of left field at all. I don't know, you know, if and when we'll get there in terms of someone actually pointing AI at this problem. I assume we will. In a way, I hope we don't, because predicting outcomes is probably the least important thing we could do, right? I think what we should be doing with the data analysis is providing a clear depiction of where we are today, because we don't know what tomorrow will bring in terms of especially the world we're living in now with with two wars raging and 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 anti-democratic efforts here at home the idea that we can predict these things in advance is foolish though so many people do try to do that um but you're right and you mentioned the polls in terms of all the problems with polls you know that was certainly on display with those couple of polls that people were talking about around election day where you had the new york times poll that was conducted 94% on cell phones, which is you know generally good, but f- for anyone who has a young person around their house, they know they're not picking up their cell phone when they don't know who's calling. They're generally not picking up their cell phone, period, because they're just texting or actually voice messaging each other. So the kind of young person they're getting to take that poll, they ended up showing in that poll that Joe, that Joe Biden was losing among younger voters in most of these battleground states. That's absurd. And then meanwhile, the CBS YouGov poll was conducted entirely online and shows them up almost 30 points with younger people. Supposedly, they have the same margin of error. Two things can't be true at once. Um, To your point, the more valuable data are these much larger data sets in terms of historical election results, individual turnout data, early vote data, and then all of the other atmospheric components that get layered in. And just no one at this point has the ability to to manage that the kind of analysis that that simon and i were doing leading up to the 2022 election is just scratching the surface of that we're actually bringing in that sort of data and it's still far from perfect and even then our objective wasn't to predict what would happen in november 2022 it was to question the the conventional wisdom about what was currently happening simon i know you've been thinking about these things for a long time. You've been very creative in the way that you've approached this riddle. What's your reaction to what I said, Tom said? And yeah, the-, the single most important thing that we've just discussed is that polling cannot predict the future. It's not, that's not what it does. And, and what's happening is that I think pollsters and polling, the polling industrial complex, as we call it, is doing right now is that it's exaggerating its role 
and what it's capable of doing. A, it can't tell you anything about tomorrow. It can only tell you what's happening today. And B, that because of margin of error, and there's three, four percent margin of error, error that you know a 44-44 race could be 48, you know, 42, right? And and so that we are also pushing polling past its level of accuracy. So, for example, when Nate Cohn said in New York that uh, in the New York Times polls that that Biden was down four because of the margin error, the, the race could have been dead even. And so all those polls really showed that things were close. Um, and as Tom pointed out, uh, the you know it's like there's a difference between a painting and a sketch. Polls are like a sketch; they're not like a painting. They can't produce that level of detail and accuracy. And I think a lot of people who are interpreting this data are pushing, exaggerating the, the, what you can really read from polling because we've because polling you know. And so we what Tom and I have done is we've tried to open the aperture to sort of help create more data, to allow more data to be visible. And even this issue that you heard in the commentary the other night about, well, you know, they're winning all over the country and they've been winning for a year and a half, but there's this one bad poll showing that things are terrible. That one bad poll will weigh more than hundreds of elections over an 18-month period. It's absurd on the face of it, right? And so, but that's where we are. And we're, we're, we have, we're weaning ourselves. We're in the process as a political commentariat, weaning ourselves from the primacy of polling. And, and it's going to be a painful process, right? Because there are a lot of people who've made their careers, make a lot of money off of being the interpreter of these arcane, you know, it's like a priest in a, you know, in a, in a temple, right? Reading obscure things that they have to tell. This isn't, and a lot of this has become, you know, BS, frankly. And, and we have an obligation, part of what Tom and I have been trying to do is to gently point out that there's actually all this other data you can look at too, and that the idea that we just keep winning everywhere and they keep losing everywhere over an 18-month period is obviously the most important data in our politics today, period, with nothing even being close to it. Yeah, you know, it's so, to, to me, it resonates so much, and it's it's like, yeah, th- these polls are looking at, a tiny subset of data in the wrong way. And there's a much bigger set of data out there and it tells a different story. But in either set, as 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 Simon suggests, predicts the future. And let's talk about that a little bit, Tom, because, you know, I mean, I, I hear a lot of people and they go, oh, well, next year, you know, Trump will be a candidate and, uh, uh, you know, Trump's base will never desert Trump and, um, Joe Biden will be older in a year and blah, 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 blah. And they, you know, they come up with this kind of analysis, except we've never had a candidate like Trump who's facing four indictments and 91 felony counts, who's old and fat and insane and, and, you know, capable of going off the rails. Uh, we've never had a candidate like Biden who, despite being old, has had a remarkable record of, uh, you know, upending predictions about him and being quite successful. The you know there are a number of factors out there in our uh, you know political you know what affects the political world uh, that are likely to only become stronger signals between now and then. The reaction to Dobbs and abortion, you know, this movement that seems to be taking place towards uh, uh, freedom and democracy is a core issue for the Democrats because. They're taking away the freedom to control your own body. They're taking away the freedom to marry who you want. They're taking away, you know, and the Supreme Court's going to keep doing that throughout this year, you know. 
and uh, they're going to keep going after, you know, they, they, we have this slow motion um, uh, coup from January 6th that's continuing to happen, at least in the House of Representatives. So, so next year is going to look a lot different from now. How do you account for that, Tom? I mean, in other words, how, when you're looking forward, do you do the windage on all that? Well, that's, that's really the biggest issue that this entire industry faces in this moment. Uh, and and it's something that we had to account for in 2022 because so much political analysis is based on benchmarking against past precedent. And generally that's worked pretty well, but what we have collectively failed to recognize still I think is how this moment lacks precedent. To your point, um going into the 2022 elections the popular conversation among the data journalists and pundits and talking heads was, will 2022 be more like 2010 or 2014? It had to be like one of those previous midterms. And if you did the math in terms of Democratic president in the White House, economic challenges, lower popularity ratings for the incumbent, um, that was what their computer spit out was. It had to look like one of those. Pick your flavor of red wave. We know that didn't happen. What we were talking about all that time was you have to, as Simon said, adjust your aperture and throw out some of those past precedents. It doesn't mean the past presidents are um, entirely useless, but they have to be taken with a much bigger grain of salt. Going into this presidential election, there is no useful precedent beyond even you know the previous election. That's the funny thing. But these guys ran against each other three years ago, it should be a pretty good precedent. But when you look at what has happened since then, and and largely there's so many things we could point to, but January 6th and Dobbs being the two big ones that really changed everything. Um, we use that as a benchmark. And that's why I think when we look at these polls and we see Trump winning in the context of Democrats overperforming in special elections stubbornly by seven or eight points, winning like uh like we did all around the country on Tuesday. And then you look at these polls and say, but Trump's winning by four points. Well, what is the plausible explanation for that? And that's the sort of benchmarking we have to do at this point is there has to be some sort of plausible story for it. I'm not aware of what that is. And what you see is those in the media, the data journalists, especially who have this one poll in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary of people actually voting, they bend themselves in these, these pretzels to try to explain why that one poll or how that one poll is right. That's why the New York Times had this story the day after the election saying that Democrats might have done very well in the election, but it doesn't change anything. Biden's still in trouble, right? Because that poll has to be right and the election results have to be irrelevant. So they have a story where uh, actually now higher turnout elections are bad for Democrats. And the more people vote, it's bad for Democrats. And apparently there's a whole lot of Trump supporters. Which, by the way, is the opposite of the story that we had in 2020. Right? Of course. Right. right. It's completely. Uh, 160 right. million people vote in, in the 2020 election. Th their notion now, the story is that there's a whole bunch of Democrats out there who support Kamala Harris, who would vote for the generic Democrat. But if it's Biden on the on the ballot, they're voting for Trump. That person does not exist, but that's a story that has been created to prop up the idea that these scattered polls are correct, where everything else we have observed with our own eyes is wrong. And that's absurd. Well, 
Well, let, let me approach the question a slightly different way to you, Simon. Uh, but I do want to say one thing, because we, we all fall victim to this trap in some some respects, right? And and uh, with the hugest amount of respect and admiration, Tom, a minute ago, you said the Democrats were overperforming by 8%. Overperforming what? The polls were underperforming. You know, the polls were were, 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 were off by the 8%. It wasn't, you know, I mean, things were headed in the way they were headed all along. Yeah, that's right. That's, I right. mean, for the most part, right. when, when we say overperforming, we're talking about the Biden 2020 numbers is generally the baseline. Right. That we're actually doing, right. but, but, our oh, point is that we're doing better than we were from that baseline, not worse. Well, the polls are suggesting right. we're actually bleeding right. support. But, but but we sort of, in most analysis that takes place when all of us variously go on TV and talk about it, is the baseline is the you know punditerati poll right the expectation <laughs> right and it's and it's not actual you know on the ground truth now now simon with regard to this as you look forward yeah. into next year what is it that makes you think that the trends we've seen with democrats doing so well will be uh continue until uh, november 5th 2024 so here's my basic take. Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. He is protecting effectively and adroitly freedom and democracy here and everywhere. We know from polling that when people are informed about what he's done, his numbers go way up. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all over the country. We're raising unprecedented amounts of money. The Democratic grassroots is helping push us to the upper end of what's possible in performance in election after election all across the country. And what do they have, right? They have Trump, the most degraded, disgraced figure in American history, who will, by the time that he's running, will, we will all know because of television advertising that he's been convicted of sexual assault against a woman in a department store, that he committed one of the largest financial frauds in American history that he oversaw what may be the greatest security breach and theft of American secrets in what in the Western world, that he oversaw and led an insurrection against the uh, United States Congress, an armed insurrection with 435 members in the building, tried to overturn an election and end American democracy. All of those things will become widely known and understood because that's what campaigns do. And as I look forward, I can see our path for victory very clearly because Joe Biden's been a good president and we have a strong story to tell. I have no idea how you put lipstick on the Trump pig. I have no idea how you rehabilitate him next year. He is the worst figure to serve in our country and our history. And I think we have more tools, as Tom will tell you, to define him as being out of the mainstream and dangerous than any set of camp than any campaign has ever had in modern American history. And so when I project forward, we're not only kicking their ass and winning. But they have the weakest candidate that we've ever had, and we've done a really good job. And I will put up, and so it's my view that I would much rather be us than them in every way possible, and I'm very optimistic about 2024. And just one other observation building on something Tom said about next year is that there has already this week been two large sample, high-quality major polls showing Biden ahead by four points and by two points. And the idea that somehow the entire pundit class is is now sitting on a single poll that is arguably the worst poll taken in the last two years for Joe Biden as the benchmark, as the thing that they're using to gauge, as opposed to the fact that a majority of the polls taken in the last three weeks either have Biden tied or ahead 
right? And we have two brand new polls this week. By, by, by the way, both of them are right of center pollsters. So they're not even media pollsters and they're not even left of center pollsters. They're right of center pollsters have Biden with substantial leads. And that, that, that even just that basic idea, as Tom pointed out, there was enormous problems with the youth and Hispanic numbers in the, in the New York Times polls. And it's as if none of those polls exist. And the thing is, those polls are just as legitimate as the New York Times poll. And, and what is disappointing to Tom and I, I think, where we got into it with the family a year ago, was that people who do this analysis know this. They are aware that there is data challenging the data that they're talking about, and they're ignoring it on purpose because it creates too much complexity or it, or it isn't what they've been saying. So it undermines arguments that they've been making. And that's where he and I, I think, have gotten very frustrated by what we've seen over the last 18 months, which is that there are a lot of people who are going on TV and saying things, and or you're hearing in media, who know that there's data that absolutely contradicts everything they're saying, and they're still talking about it anyway. And, and that's why what he and I have been doing is so important, which is that we're, we're fighting the ability for a single poll or two polls to drive the daily discourse when there's a whole mountain of data contradicting the stuff that's coming out in this other poll. It just shouldn't be so easy. We need to make it harder for this kind of junk analysis to prevail in our daily politics. It's a lot of what he and I have been working on the last year or so. Of course, polls only reflect the views of the people who were in the poll. They don't reflect the future, as Simon said, and they also don't reflect the factors that really drive their actions. You have some exit poll information or you have some, you know, cross tabs in a poll and they can tell you something. Uh, I would note, by the way, per what Simon just said, that, you know, people discount this stuff. So for example, you know, in this poll that we're talking about here, this Time Siena poll, uh, I think, it, you know, the poll concluded that if Donald Trump were convicted of a crime, there would be a six point swing in in, in Trump's uh, results. And, you know, here's a hot flash, everybody. Donald Trump's going to get convicted of a crime. I don't know if he's going to get convicted of every crime he's been accused of, but the odds are, when you think about the fact that 96% of all, um, you know, cases that are brought by prosecutors end up resulting in a conviction, that he's going to be convicted of a crime. So that's, that's going to that's gonna change that. Um, Tom, pick up on what Simon was saying, but also when you look at the factors that are likely to affect next year, what do you think are the most important ones that are going to affect the outcome? Things that are going to happen between now and then. Well, I, th I think one of the biggest things is, is, is what we already know and what we've experienced, but wasn't a factor in 2020, which is the notion that Democrats for the entirety of the Trump presidency were warning about authoritarianism and Republican extremism, and it wasn't entirely resonating with voters. I think just because we're a resilient people and we go into some amount of denial faced with some amount of tragedy and trauma. And I do think the Dobbs decision changed that dynamic, where suddenly people have this lived experience where a Supreme Court precedent that existed for half a century was gone and that it was the work of the Republicans and Republicans were bragging about it, and suddenly their lives changed dramatically. And 
I believe that made voters look at Republicans anew and look at these claims of Republican extremism anew, and um, they were more credible. And that's why January 6th suddenly resonated, and that's why all these claims of Republican extremism had such an important role in 2022. I think going forward, you know, one of the more important developments, I think, adds to that file of Republican extremism, because again, Republicans had a choice where they could go in one direction and try to bring things back or another direction and lean into it. And they've clearly um, put the accelerator on the floor with the speaker, um, obviously the speaker fiasco, but um, the, the, the relatively new speaker of the house is the most extreme speaker of the house um, who has, has, has served at least any time uh, in recent history. Um, everything that we learn about him every day is uh, more shocking. I think that will have an impact um, I think this continuing Republican presidential primary, what we saw in the debate, I think a big development here for next year that will impact the presidential race is Republicans are getting frustrated that they are losing at the ballot box, shocker, on abortion and in these these political races like in Kentucky and Virginia. And now they're looking for an alternative and their alternative is to pass a federal abortion ban, a 15-week ban. We heard that um, from candidates in the Republican debate. I believe they're going to lean into that next year because they don't have an alternative. And what we saw in 2022 and, and the key, Simon has, uh, has, he was the one who, who identified this in the first place. And he is the one who has been telling this story since then, this notion of two elections. Well, the reason there were two elections in 2022 was because in a lot of states, Republican extremism, especially the abortion issue, weren't perceived as threats. That's why we lost seats in places like New York and California. You put a federal abortion ban on the ballot and suddenly the threat is everywhere. Um, and that's a huge problem for Republicans. So I think that's a big development that will have a huge impact on this election. I don't see any of these developments at this point. And I try to think of things on the other side of the aisle. I don't see the developments uh, down the road at this point um, that help Trump. I mean, maybe there are some things in terms of the international situation that could develop one way or another that could. But at this point, everything seems to be pointing towards problems for him. Uh, that's an important point. Um, normally, at this point in a podcast, I'll say to everybody who is not a member, I'll say, thanks very much for joining us. And why don't you go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and become a member for $5 a month and help support what we do. And then you can listen to the rest of the podcast. But this discussion is so core to our mission that I'm not going to say that right now. We're not going to take a break, and we're not going to tune out all of you who are out there in the general um, public who are not yet members. We're just going to say um, this is the kind of podcast that we do that we think is important. And uh, the more of you who sign up to become members, the more we can do. So without putting a paywall in here, I just want to encourage people who think this is useful to go in, sign up, spend $5 a month and help support what we're doing. But let me go on with this. And I want to challenge um, uh, you, Simon, to, to, to come up with something that, that, you know, that Tom has said he's has a hard time seeing. And that is what's worrying on the horizon for the Democrats? Well, look, there are a bunch of things we, you know, obviously the international situation and also the economy, right? I mean, right now, we, if the economy is strong next year or even middling, 
uh, or and things look like they're getting better in Ukraine and the Middle East, it's going to be very hard to beat Joe Biden. And but obviously, you know, these are very volatile situations. The economy is still choppy and bumpy. I mean, it's doing really well, but you know, we could see a slowdown that could end up bringing in a mild recession, which, by the way, is something we actually kind of want, by the way. It's, I mean, we have to start talking about this. The slowdown is actually the goal of our policy right now to help get inflation down. Um, but certainly, I think those two are the biggest, you know, the biggest issues uh, in front of us in Biden's health. I mean, I think it's critical that he stay healthy. And, um, you know, as we run in, I mean, even Hillary's mild illness that she had in September of of 2016, I think, was actually material in the election. It created some uncertainty around her um, in 2016. So health issues can matter. But I think, Tom, I, I just broadly agree with what Tom said, is that I think that the biggest, what we know from polling is that when people are informed of Biden's accomplishments, his numbers go up. We also know that I think that the amount of information that people don't have about Trump that's going to be very, even though we're living it every day in this high information environment, I think people are going to be shocked and terror, you know, as we saw from that poll, the New York Times poll, David, it was a much bigger swing than six points. I mean, in some of those battleground states, Trump lost 17 points when he, so you're talking about that if that poll is correct, where if Trump is is convicted and sentenced to jail, Joe Biden wins the election in that poll by 10 points. One would have assumed, to your point, that that would have been a major part of the New York Times coverage of the poll because it was the first time anybody had asked about this. They didn't actually write about it until day three, which is a little bit shocking because to me, in some ways, it's the most newsworthy part of the poll. And so, look, I'm broadly optimistic about where we are. You know, we've been winning. Joe Biden's been a good president. They're the worst set of political leaders that we've seen in modern American history. And we should be able to win this election. And my hope is that we really try to win the election by 10 points and blow it out. Because I think the goal here is why everyone has to work so hard. Because if we do win by eight or 10 points, it will be a clear repudiation of MAGA and it will start to loosen MAGA's dark grip on the Republican Party, which is something that we all want. It's good for the Democrats. It's good for the country. But it's also good for the Republican Party, who have been take, whose party, the party of Lincoln and Reagan, has been overtaken by extremists and extremism. And as I like to say, David, what we now know about the Republican Party and the reason that Republicans have to be so worried is not only is Dobbs an anchor around their you know, ankle that's going to be dragging them down for a long time, because this compromised position they had, the 15-week abortion ban just went up in flames in Virginia. Um, but the, the second piece of it is that you know, they, for now, for, forever, will now be the party of Lincoln, the party of Reagan, and the party that tried to end American democracy. That's going to always be true of the Republican Party now, forever. And it's a big problem for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it strikes me listening to you. A lot of people think, when does the MAGA nightmare end? And a lot of people say it doesn't seem to, you know, what all the developments don't seem to have an effect on the voters. Um, but the MAGA nightmare ends not when the voters change their view. MAGA nightmare ends when politicians don't think it works anymore and they start doing something else because going to that base is just not enough. Um, and uh, that could clearly happen next year, particularly in the scenario um, that, that Simon uh, describes. Um, you know, there's another sort of whole component of this, Tom, which is the cognitive dissonance 
with, you know, the, the sort of selective analysis that takes place. You know, what I just brought up about, about uh, the impact of a conviction is one. Um, you touched on another. Polls suggest that in a lot of these places, Kamala Harris is a big asset to this administration. That didn't stop me, by the way, from seeing a bunch of you know pundits out there going, well, because Biden's in terrible shape, the one thing he's got to do is dump his vice president. <laughs> and, and it was like, wait a minute, you know. But, but this was, you know, these are fairly serious people in this 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 realm. Um, uh, I, w- I was wondering if you had a similar reaction to that. I, I did. I, you know, I, I, I think the vice president doesn't get nearly the credit she deserves. Going back to the 2020 campaign, when you look at the performance, one of the biggest things that stood out to me, just because it shocked me when I saw it, was the turnout from Asian American voters, API voters, who in her saw proud representation and turned out in record setting numbers in places like Georgia and Arizona and Nevada, these states that were decided by the narrowest margins, just by that one element alone, what she brought the, the, to the table and the organizing that she did and the turnout that she inspired was a key element to that ticket winning. And then you look at what she's done as vice president. I know she hasn't been as prominent as any vice president. <laughs> she, it, it's, you know, it's the same thing. I think we always talk about that in terms of, well, what are they doing? Why aren't they doing more? It's hard for them to get visibility. She's done a lot. I think what she's done in terms of leadership, especially in the post Dobbs environment on that issue and bringing that issue to the forefront um, is, is powerful. And yeah, to your point, this New York Times poll did show that, that she was actually in these battleground states uh, when polled as a candidate unto herself, supposedly running ahead of President Biden. Um, so she's clearly an asset. Um, there is cognitive dissonance. I do want to say, just to go to go back to the point about the convictions, just to be fair and consistent, I'm not a huge fan of polling questions that ask you, how would you react if this happened? Because people are poor predictors of their own behavior and psychology, or they sometimes say what they think is the right answer. So, you know, I, I take those responses with a grain of salt. That said, I have a hard time believing that the president being convicted and potentially sent to jail, the former president, um, will help him in any way. So I think it's safe to say directionally that's showing something real in terms of the the specific numbers. You know, I do want to be consistent here and say I'm not sure I buy um, that. I don't think it's knowable until it happens because we haven't experienced this yet. I think it'll be shocking for a lot of people. I think it could have an even bigger impact than the polls suggest, but we just don't know. As far as the vice president thing goes, and I've written a lot about this, it, you know, it's people have very short memories. Most people don't really care about vice presidents. You know, I mean, occasionally if Dick Cheney and he shoots somebody and then it's like a big story. But most of the time, you know, it's Dan Quayle or even Joe Biden who had, you know, his approval ratings during the Biden administration were just a little lower than I mean, during the Obama administration were just a little lower than Obama's because that's always where vice presidents are. Uh, that's even the case in the case of the greatest Vice President of the Modern Era, of course. By that I mean Gary Nance from the movie Dave, played by, played by ben, ben Kingsley, who stepped up in a big way at the end of that movie and was actually the, the right person to be president. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, all this is just, you know, fairly common. Having said all of this, 
this is the point in a podcast where you say, well, we can't be overconfident and Democrats need to do X. You know, we need to be prescriptive. And I know you talk to the people in the White House a lot, Simon. What do you tell them? Well, I think what we have, I think, first of all, it's really important for everyone to understand that the campaign hasn't really begun yet and and there's time, Um, but it is going to start heating up. You can see it already. And I think we have three things we have to do, right? We've got, in addition to governing well, one is we have to tell our story. We were given power. What did we do with it? Did we do a good job? I think we can make the case we've made the country better. I think it's self-evident to me, but we have to make that case. The second thing is Biden's got to start laying out what he will do in his second term. And I think for him, given his age, that's actually more important than usual, right? Because he has to get, and I think there has to be three or four kind of big things that people can point to, to say, if we elect him, you know, we're going to, we're going to see this, this is going to happen. And then finally, we have to draw the contrast with, with what, you know, happens if we, if they get elected. And I, you know, I think that as I wrote today in my Substack. You know, electing Trump and the Republicans gets you a warmer planet, more dead kids in school, more uh, more ten year olds having babies, a national abortion ban with no exceptions. Uh, you Russia getting a big chunk of Ukraine, and uh, Trump. You know, Trump has now made it very clear he's going to walk away from NATO and dismantle the entire Western alliance. Um, and we get the end of American democracy, right? I mean, those are just a handful of things that I just put out there. And I, I think that when the American people are faced with the reality of what the Republicans are actually saying, not this mythical understanding of this soft kind of center-right political party that hasn't existed in a very long time, the country club Republican Party, but the reality of what MAGA really means, I'm really confident that we're going to win this argument because I think Joe Biden has been a good president. I think he's got time to develop a strong agenda for the second term. And I think that one of the things I'm very happy about is you could see in the last few days, the Biden-Harris campaign taking the gloves off. I mean, they went after Trump really hard yesterday for the first time on social media around his abortion comments. I mean, the video just that I've seen the last 24 hours about statements Trump's made about Dobbs, about him being responsible for it. There's no person in America more responsible for Dobbs and the ending of Roe than Donald Trump. There is no person more responsible for stripping the way of rights from women that has happened in the last year and a half than Donald Trump. He's on camera saying it. It is a huge problem for them. And the second big problem for them on the abortion issue, as Tom raised earlier, is the speaker is, you know, among the most extremists on this issue in the country. He has repeatedly introduced a nationwide ban with no exceptions, which polls at about 15%, by the way. Um, And we can now credibly say that if you elect Donald Trump and keep the House Republican, there's a high likelihood that we'll have a national ban with no exceptions in 2025. And that will not be a stretch. That will be a proximate reality, given the fact that they elevated this guy up. That is a huge problem for them, particularly in the battleground, as Tom mentioned earlier, where we've been litigating MAGA and and the voters in the battleground states continually reject MAGA in election after election. Our tools to make them sound extreme, to be those Republicans that, you know, there's this big awareness in the electorate that something's gone wrong with the Republican Party, right? We have all these tools to tap into that. The tools we have to tap into that are more significant than we've ever had. 
because they've become more extreme in the last few years. Actually, they're not moving away from MAGA. They're diving deeper into it and becoming more extreme. So as I, again, as I game all this stuff out, I would much rather be us than them. And I think that Biden, what I'm excited about is to see how the Biden team starts developing their second term agenda. I think that's going to be really important for the country to understand that there's something that we're voting for something, not just voting against something. And I think the collective effort we all have to go through to build a comprehensive, attractive agenda for the party is going to be a fun exercise in the next three to six months. Okay. So I had a very complimentary question that I was going to ask you, Tom, to what Simon said. And you can answer anything you want. This is Washington. People typically don't answer the questions that I post. Just answer what they want to. But I'm going to ask you one that's coming from the news as we record this, because we're recording this um, on a Thursday afternoon. Joe Manchin just announced he's not running for the Senate um, in West Virginia. Um, uh now, that doesn't mean he's not going to run for president on the no labels ticket. Uh, it does mean that in all likelihood, a Democratic seat in the Senate is going to go away and become a Republican seat. Um, interpret it. And if you want to talk about no labels, talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, breaking news. Um, certainly, in, in terms of Democratic chances in the Senate, which is Simon was saying in terms of if you elect Trump and that message of a vote for Trump is a vote for a federal election, a federal abortion ban, certainly got stronger right now because it just makes the path in the Senate um, one seat more difficult for Democrats. It was already a difficult path. Now, I've felt um, optimistic about Democratic chances in the Senate because we have strong incumbents in places like Ohio and Montana. Um, but certainly to lose that seat is challenging. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it, it makes the path in the Senate harder, but still doable for Democrats. I think in a way it makes the path for Republicans to the white house also more challenging because that threat, that perception of threat, um, is now more real in terms of no labels. Um, I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear what they're doing. From what they've said and from does the fact that they it. are the spawn of Satan have anything to do? That's <laughs> a little bit. That's a little bit. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to be uh, cautious and measured here in what I say. But you know, if you look at what I've tweeted about them in the past, or if you were privy to some of the things that I've said in, in other venues, I am uh, uh, not a fan, to say the least. I mean, it's it 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 seems like. Uh, a backdoor attempt to elect Trump and nothing more. And so anyone who's participating in it, I, 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 nothing more isn't fair. It's also a way for a lot of consultants to, to, to get rich. Um, yeah. And consultants are really a great breed. I mean, it's like, think of how long Steve Schmidt was a hero of democracy. And now he's like on this chaotic campaign of this Minnesota democratic house member, you know, be, you know, which is going to weaken Joe Biden and undermine everything he said. But I guess there's a paycheck. Yeah, um, I saw that this morning. I mean, that was unfortunate when you saw the campaign staff that's jumping in behind this notion that somehow it's a good idea to primary the sitting president who is the only one standing between us and autocracy. And you see the people have jumped in on that campaign. All I'll say is it's not surprising. You know, I just, Simon, I just, I was going to give him the last word because it's polite, but 
you know, I just can't resist. I just, when you saw the mansion news, I just saw your face. Surely you have something to say about this. Yeah, I mean, look, I, it's sort of shocking to me that he did it today. Um, he could have allowed the Democrats to get a couple of days of good news here. I mean, it sort of speaks to the fact that his motives here and, you know, we have to read. This guy this. never misses a chance to kick the Democrats in the nuts. No, never. And I mean, it's, it, it, it's the level. I mean, you know, we just had an amazing election. We're getting a few days of positive press and he's got a crap all over it. And it's just a sign of his, you know, sort of I, look, I don't, I don't in general. I don't know that any of these splinter party, third party movements are going to amount to anything. Cornell West and Robert Kennedy are kind of jokes as candidates. I don't think Manchin's a terribly attractive candidate. He's not going to pull that many Democrats. And I know the theory is like in 20, you know, 2000, 2016, they only need to pull one or 2%, but not if we win the election by eight points, right? Not if we've got a large single digit lead. And the goal here is that we have to do two things, I think. One is we have to keep building up Joe Biden and the Democrats. That's the answer to all of this. And the second is we also have to remember, remind everybody that the most successful and um, third party, splinter party, rogue party movement in America is the Never Trump or Never MAGA movement, which has had a huge impact on our politics already. And if Liz Cheney's campaigning side by side with Biden next year, um, and you know all that infrastructure is behind us, is that three, four, five points in the electorate that we may be able to get that was unavailable to us before? Will that will that offset any of the you know the one percent that Cornell West gets? I think it can, and so I, I think that I'm. I would, you know, we have to, whenever we talk about third party and splinter parties, we have to start with the fact that the most significant and proven of all of those is with us. And it's expanding our coalition and making us stronger. And we should be very grateful, frankly, to these former Republicans who've come into coalition with us to prevent MAGA from winning. They've been very courageous and brave, and we, they deserve, frankly, a lot more praise and for that courage and, and bravery, I think, because they've been critical to our success in recent elections and will be again in 2024. Yeah, it's a great point. And if you're worried about Joe Manchin, I have two words for you. Colin Allred, who is running against Ted Cruz in Texas, who, you know, can keep it close. Uh, go read about him. He's a spectacularly good candidate. Um, and that's a place where you can take it back. If, if you want to support that kind of thing, you should do it. Um, uh, in any event, you guys are the best, fascinating, provide insight as though, you know, it, you know, that is not available, uh, for the most part on, on, on a sort of other larger platforms. You should be on all of those other larger platforms more frequently than you already are. Um, and I hope you'll come back here because this is a conversation that we're going to continue now for the next whatever it is, 362-odd more days between now and uh, the day after Election Day. But, yikes, uh, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> yeah, it's all coming at us pretty fast. Um, but for now, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back again with more interesting stuff real soon.